If you read through the Bible from Genesis to Revelations, you'd find that by and large, it's a book that deals with factious communities and factious individuals, and meaning that they're contentious, that they're antagonistic, they're argumentative, uh, and divided against one another and against God. I mean, they need to rename the book of Genesis to the book of dysfunctional families because it, it's just unbelievable. And if I were to just give you kind of a, a quick hit on some of the stuff out of the Old Testament, here's what it would sound like. Cain killed his brother Abel because Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God and Cain's was rejected. Noah was uh, mocked and threatened by the people that lived around him and he continued to obey God while they continued to live out evil and wicked lives. Moses led Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, and once he got them away from Egypt, they hated his guts, wanted to kill him and go back into slavery. In 930 B.C., Israel, the entire nation, had a divide. They were divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom made of ten tribes, and it was called Israel. And the southern kingdom called uh, Judah, made up of Judah and Benjamin. And they were loyal to the house of David, the King David. If you slip into modern church history, you're going to find that divisions continue to thrive throughout our world and in the church. In the church, you have the division between Arminian doctrine and Calvinist doctrine. Some of you are going, what's that? If you don't know, thank Jesus. <laughs> There's a division between the liturgical church and the evangelical church. There's a different uh, a division amongst worship styles from contemporary to traditional. And the crazy part is, is what we would call traditional worship 70 years ago was contemporary. And yet we're going to divide over it. And even probably the most crazy thing to me about all of this is that there's a, a division on what translation of Bible you should read. When we first moved to Lander, I mean, I had already been here for three or four months, and then Lorinda and uh, Carissa and Tyson joined the rest of the family. And um, so back in those days, some greeting people in town would get who the new people were and they'd send, you know, send it out to various people. And so a couple of guys from one of the other churches in town came to our house to welcome us to Lander and to invite us to their church. And Lorinda answered the door and they said, you know, we'd really like you, you know, welcome to Lander. We, we want to invite you to come to church with us. And she says, well, thank you very much, but I'm going to have to decline. And they go, oh, why is that? Well, my, past, my, my husband's the pastor, new pastor of a church in town. Oh, well, that makes sense that you would want to go to church with him. <laughs> and so uh, they said, they continued on the conversation. They said to her, so what version of Bible does your husband preach out of? And she said, well, you know, he uses a variety of, of different translations that he preaches out of. And no kidding, they said, if your husband isn't preaching out of the King James Version, He's sending all those people to hell. My bad. I'm sorry. Get in your cars and drive to Riverton today. 
Divisions aren't just found in the church. They're found in our community. They're found in our workplace. They're found in our school system. They're found in our local government. As a matter of fact, divisions are a reality of the arena of life. And, and it's crazy because wherever you're, there's more than one person, you'll have division in the family and in marriage, in every aspect of life. And, and the, the thing that is really interesting is that every level, people are longing for unity, not disunity. They want harmony, not chaos. They want integration, not disintegration. That's what we want. In the words of Rodney King, why can't we all just get along? Young guys are going, who's Rodney King? <laughs> when you get home, look it up on your device. And then you'll laugh. Oh, oh. Anyway, the indicators for that longing in our lives is that, we're, that what we're looking for and longing for is for peace and harmony. We desire tranquility, mutual respect. And one of the major causes to the divisions that we have is this idea that I, I've got this focus on life and how it should be operated and how it should run. And whenever something or someone puts a roadblock in my way in that, that's where division comes because it comes over the whole thing of our opposing or controversial opinions. And the end result of all that is, is that we don't make any concessions to one another to live out life in harmony. We just want what we want. If we don't get it, if I don't get my way, then I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave this relationship. I'm going to leave this church. I'm going to leave this job. I'm going to leave everything behind. And everything is broken, and we leave it broken and unmended. Now, in our study on 1 Corinthians, Paul has received reports about divisions in the church, and he was, he was concerned, not just for this church, but every church that he planted, he was concerned that there might be some kind of schism or disagreement that would split the church. He understood human nature. He understood the reality of all of it. And so he wrote to these churches to help him. In, in, to the Philippian church, after he uh, was, did some introductions, he sent them an encouragement. And here's what he said to the Philippians. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. It doesn't specifically say unity, but it gives you the definition of what unity is, biblically speaking. And, and for the Ephesians, he wanted to make sure that they understood that it was really important. And he wrote, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. As Paul wrote to these two churches, he's telling them that if you're going to be a part of the body of Christ, if you're going to be in the church, if you're going to belong to the community of faith, it means that you have to do everything in your power through the Spirit to be of one mind, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In this letter to the Corinthians church, Paul does something a little unique from all the rest of the letters that he wrote. The unique thing is that when he wrote to the other churches, he would always lay out a theological foundation before he got to the issues. But when he wrote to the Corinthian church, he skipped all that and went straight at the issue. 
He came straight at it and said, hey, there are some problems going on here that we need to address. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 1.10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So the first thing I want you to notice is that Paul is not making this a demand or a command of the church. He's making an appeal to them, but he does, I love it, he pulls the Jesus card out right away. He says, I'm making an appeal to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes to the highest authority of the church. Here's the founder, here's the highest authority of the church and of the universe, and guess what? In him, we're supposed to have this peace and this unity. And so he appeals to them on that level. He, he wants them to understand that it's, it's of the utmost importance because the relationship of Christ was the unifying factor of the church. There is no other name big enough, great enough, glorious enough, powerful enough to gather everybody together despite diversity of view, viewpoint and the differences of background or status in life than the name of Jesus. He's the only one that can do it. You just think about the diversity of this group sitting in here today. There is no way on earth that outside of the realm of our relationship with Christ that we should be coming together, hanging out, singing songs together, sharing some coffee, and loving on each other. Because we all come from such a diverse background. And yet it's through the bonds of love of Christ that he says, come together, I've got some new brothers and sisters I want you to meet. You don't even know them yet. And they're going to be some, for some of us, these people in this room are closer than our actual blood family. We have this responsibility to obey and follow the lordship of Jesus. And it's only based upon Christ that followers can agree with each other. It's on the person of Jesus. And so Paul's calling them back to the fundamental base of faith. But yet the apostle says they are to be of the same mind. Now, how can that be? Well, back to the letter to the Philippians. It's going to help us. Because in this passage that I just read from, Philippians 2, he goes on to say this. Let this mind be in you, which also, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, what Paul is saying is that, that because you belong to Christ and Christ lives in you, you can have, you have the mind of Christ. You don't have to wonder about things. You want to know what Jesus knows? Ask him. You want to think how God thinks? Jesus is the answer. That's the process in which we go through. But it, it, it doesn't just stop there because he goes on through um, verses 5 and 8 and it brings this great Christological passage where he describes the mind of Christ. Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of a man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You want to know what the mind of Christ was like? 
That's what the mind of Christ is like. It's what Paul's talking about. When everybody decides to put the things of Christ first and is willing to suffer loss so that the honor and the glory of Christ might be advanced, that's what brings harmony to the body of Christ, to the church, to the ecclesia. That's why the unifying factor in a church is Christ. It's, it's, it's the mind that he has that we're supposed to have among us. The mind that does not consider itself to be the most important thing in the church. When the church functions with the mind of Christ, there is peace within the church. Paul uses this word peace at the beginning of the letter in his salutations or his welcome or uh, introducing himself to the church. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word that Paul would have used here, in Hebrew, it would have been shalom, and he might have used the equivalent in Greek. And what that word means is more than just the absence of strife. Let me tell you what it means when you say shalom to a a Jew. This is what they're going to receive from you. It means completeness, wholeness, health, welfare, safety, soundness, tranquility, prosperity, perfectness, fullness, rest, harmony, in the absence of agitation or discord. In other words, what Paul is saying when he says the church needs to have this peace through the unity of the Spirit is that we are to be in perfect harmony with God and with others. That's the way the church is supposed to function. Oops. So when Paul says that he wants the church to agree and not allow anything to to bring division to the church, to be united on the same mind. He's making an appeal to the church to maintain their focus on the reality of Christ as the head of the church. He's not looking for uniformity. I don't want uniformity. I don't want you guys all to be like me. That would be really boring. And we wouldn't get a whole lot done because we'd be asking each other who's going to do it. Not my job. Maturity in the church only takes place when we're connected in community with others because spirituality demands community. You will never know if you're spiritual if you avoid relationships within, with other Christ followers. I don't know if this is true or not. I read this that a number of years ago, Sylvester Stallone uh, claimed to have become a Christian. And in an interview... He talked about his tendency to be independent and self-sufficient. But he said now he recognized his need for the church. And he said the church is the gym of the soul. And if he did say that, he's right. It's where true spirituality works itself out. In here. Paul's point is simple. If oneness in mind and judgment marks the church... It's because Christ is one. We are one in Christ. And oneness is based on the principle of Christ's church. And that principle should affect our attitude about the church. But so often, though, the church is run down by the people who should be building it up the most. How many times have you heard somebody talk bad about their church? There's nothing but a bunch of hypocrites in my church. Well, where else are they supposed to go for Pete's sakes? I mean, come on. If the church isn't filled with hypocrites, then it's going to be empty. Nudge your neighbor and just say, hey, welcome to church, you hypocrite. 
this leads Paul to this long negative appeal that the church should have no divisions. The word divisions really is recalling the, the mindset of a plow creating a furrow in the ground. It's the dividing point. In the New Testament, when it talked about divisions in the Gospels, it's talking about a garment being torn in two. There's this dividing, and, and it's not brought back together easily. And it's, Paul is saying that the things that cause division in the church, they're not minor issues. We might think they're minor issues. Attitude, behavior, thought patterns, how we think about other people. We might go, it's no big deal. It is a big deal because inevitably what it does is it will be destructive to the health of the church. God wants a healthy church. Before we move on, there's two things we need that are really important, two principles we need to recognize. First one is disagreement can be healthy. The Bible warns us of the dangers of bitter disputes, but it also urges us to cultivate the art of gracious disagreement. Back when I was um, just a young pup, Lorinda and I had been married for maybe three and a half or four years. I, we were attending a, a large church, and I did a lot of volunteer work in the church in the youth department. And so a group of us guys, we would get together a couple times a month. We called it the Divine Meeting of the Bean. That was a coffee bean which meant we were going for coffee, and we had theological issues that we would throw on the table to discuss. And there were strong opinions on, on all fronts about the issues that we talked about. We came in to that time where we were drinking coffee and as friends, discuss, discussing issues that had the very potential to split our friendship. But what we understood was is that they were just issues and the greatest thing that we had was this connectivity between us and each other through the Spirit of Christ. And so even though we dis- disagreed and sometimes we disagreed strongly when we walked up and walked out of that, of that coffee shop, we were still the best of friends. The issues didn't have to rip us apart. And so when we're in disagreement with other people, there are things that we can learn. We can learn if we're humble and respectful and responsible. I can learn from other people who disagree with me. I can't help they're wrong. The second thing is conflict is unavoidable. We don't need to feel guilty just because we're involved in some conflict within the church. There's, there's levels of conflict. Level one conflict is healthy. It's a good thing for the church because trouble's unavoidable. Conflict's going to come. It's going to come to the best of churches. It's going to come to the best of spiritual leaders. It's going to come to the best of boards. It's going to come to the best of friends. Conflict came to Jesus and his inner circle of disciples. It came between Paul and Barnabas and Paul and Peter. Conflict came not only to the immature church of Corinth, but it came to the much more mature church of Philippi. So the question isn't, 
will conflict come? But the question is, when conflict comes, how will we deal with it so that it's glorifying to God and produces good fruit in the church? Those are the issues that we need to understand as we move along. So don't run away from conflict. Step into it for the glory of God. What can I learn in this conflict? And what can we take from this conflict so that the church of Christ shines brighter than before we had the conflict? Now, there's some conflict that's uh, it's kind of like dynamite. You know, dynamite can be very helpful if it's used properly. It'll move things. It will loosen things up. It will produce something of greater good. But if it's not used in the right way, it's very destructive. It'll blow your house up. And conflict can be the thing that blows God's house up if it's not used properly. But if it's used the way that God intended for it to be used, conflict will deepen relationships in marriage, in family, and in the church. Now we're going to move on to verse 11, verses 11 through 15 and see where these divisions came from. And in verse 11 it says this, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's uh, people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. No one knows who she was exactly. She evidently had a householder business that included servants, some who had traveled to Corinth and, and then returned to Ephesus because Paul was in Ephesus at this time when he wrote this letter to Corinth. And, and, they, and they returned and they shared with Paul that there were quarrels in the church over various preferences. Now, I want you to notice something about this, that, that as Paul rebukes the Corinthian church, he gives up his source. He doesn't try to protect her identity. He puts the weight of a reliable testimony behind his words. Our tendency is to say, uh, Pastor, there's some rumors going around the church. Or my favorite one that I get quite a bit is that, by the way, there's been a number of people who have told me. Okay, who are they? Oh, I can't disclose that. Really? Why not? Well, you know, they didn't want me to say anything. Oh, then why'd you open your big trap? See, here's the thing that is really interesting. We try really hard to protect the informant's identity. And when we do that, we blunt our rebuke. We, may, we water it down. We make it weak because it's just some nebulous person out there that has an issue. But that's not what Paul does. He, he gets her permission and he, he deals with the issue. The best way to deal with it is if the person who has is the informant goes directly to the brother or sister. But if he or she is unwilling, then we must get permission to use his or her name. And if you don't get permission to use the name of the person that's making the complaint, then don't use their name and number two, don't use their information because there's, it's weak. There's nothing to it if I say some person said. 
If I say my wife said, you better duck and run. She might be 105 pounds, but she is pure dynamite, baby. So, in in verse 12, Paul informs us that the church was picking and choosing preachers based on personality or giftedness. Here's what Paul writes. What I mean is that each one of you says, I will follow Paul, I will follow Apollos, I will follow Cephas. By the way, do you know who Cephas is? You do know him. He's the guy that walked on water. Peter. Yeah, it's Pete. He wrote a couple of books in the Bible. And um, I don't know why Paul decided to use Cephas instead of Peter, but he did. But it's, it's the same dude, okay? And then there's the other group that says, I followed Christ. Now, what they're doing, this is called patronage. And it's an attempt at self-validation by the means of another person's success or status. Seeking validation is something outside of self, and it's a very common phenomenon among people. People tend to attach themselves to individuals, causes, industries, dreams that have given them a vision of the world as they think it should be. We attach ourselves to the things that we think or the person that we really think is going to give us a voice. Have you ever heard that little name-dropping stuff going on when you're with other people? By the way, the other day I was with Pastor Ken. I can see how impressed you all were. All right, so that wasn't a very good example. Let's examine for a minute the specific personality cults that have invaded the Corinthian church. First, there was the Paul party. And it's normal that some would appreciate Paul since he founded the church and had ministered in Corinth for 18 months with God's blessing. They knew him well. They loved him. He was the the first pastor of the church. And this group was probably the original core, the, 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 the chartered members of the church that was established by Paul. And I can just hear what they're saying. They're, they're, they've got this regretful cry and, and whine in their voice, and they're saying, we'll never have another pastor like Paul. Well, get over it. Paul isn't going to hang around. He's got more churches to plant. And, and, you know, and then they get into their little holy huddle and they have this little conversation about what it would be like to have the good old days return. They weren't good days. They were just old days. And we make them out to be better than what they really were. I mean, I mean, if you want to find out what the good old days were like in, in this church about 13 years ago, talk to Griff or Jamie or Matt. They're going to tell you what those old days were like. You better have a little while, too, because it might take some time. The Opposing the Paul party was the second group known as the Apollos party. And Apollos was an Alexandrian Jew, an eloquent preacher, a skillful defender of the faith, apparently the second pastor of the Corinthian church. Hey, does anybody here know who Ravi Zacharias is? Put your hands up. That's what Apollos was like. The guy can... The guy could preach his way out of a concrete bunker. Some of us can't preach our way out of a wet paper bag. But that's Apollos. The guy was talented. He was gifted. He was knowledgeable. 
and, and Paul and, and Apollos were two different guys completely because Apollos was mentored and discipled by Paul. But, but Paul was, was a teacher. Apollos was a gifted preacher. While Paul was very analytical in his thinking, Apollos was more altruistic in his thinking, meaning that he was showing unselfish concern for the welfare of others in the church. They loved him because not only could he preach like nobody else, he would love on you at the same time in such a deep way that you just were lifted into euphoria, into the seventh heaven of God. And who wouldn't like that? Well, I'll tell you who wouldn't like that. The next party, the Peter party. <laughs> Apparently, Peter never visited Corinth. So this is kind of mystifying why there are all these people who are going, yeah, Peter's the great guy we want to listen to because he's well-known in church circles everywhere since he was one of Christ's three um, closest companions. Peter was the leading apostle to the Jews. It's understandable that many of the church uh, Christ followers, especially in the the Jewish believers would have had revered him deeply. And I suspect that the issue at stake here probably was on legalism because in Galatians chapter 2, we read about this heavyweight bout between Peter and Paul where they're, they're just taking the gloves off and they're going after each other. And Paul denounced Peter for being hypocritically kowtowing to the Jewish legalists in the church. It was all about circumcision. And this little um, fight that went on between them, it got around. People were going like, hey, did you hear what happened between Pete and Paul? They really got after it. Peter got his hind end kicked, and for good reason. But what happened out of that, and what I think is the thing, is that Peter acquired a reputation as a champion to the traditionalists as he opposed to Paul's emphasis in freedom in Christ. You've got to obey all the rules is what the traditionalists are saying. Here they are. Obey, obey, obey. And and Paul's over here going like, whoa, the rules have all been taken care of. Just live free, baby. Free in Jesus. Just let it go. Just go where the Spirit leads you. You see, now we have another division, contention amongst the churches. So you have the Peter group. You have Paul. You have Apollos, you have Peter. But the most dangerous group of all of these out of these four examples is the I follow Jesus group. Can you just hear it? They're just going to pull it out right away, throw the Jesus card down on the table. Well, that's who you like? I like Jesus. (laughs) Take that. I mean, how do you trump that? Really? Honestly? The Jesus card every time? But here's, here's where the problem is in that. I mean, the truth is, We all need to follow Christ. We all need to be Jesus lovers. We all need Jesus in our lives. But here's what these believers were doing. This group was no less proud and arrogant about the fact that they denounced all the rest of these other three guys and said, we don't need those guys because guess what? I'm of Christ. I'm in Christ. And what they're saying is that the rest of us are not of Christ. There's this exclusive ism that's wrong. It's exclusiveness out of who they think themselves to be because they're superior because they went right to the Jesus card over everybody else. And so what they're doing is they're throwing down the spiritual gauntlet and they're saying, we're the elite ones. We're the spiritual team that has it all together. We have an element of spirituality that nobody else has the entire church. 
We've got it all together. And you guys that are following Peter or Paul or Apollos, you guys are second or third class as far as it comes to spirituality. We're the ones that have got it together. And the Christ party, they felt that they had a corner on truth. When anybody says they have a corner on truth, you need to perk your ears up and listen because that's not true. And the, the, and the Christ party, here's what else they thought. They thought they had a leash on, on Jesus and they had God in a box. And so they weren't subservient to God or to Christ. God was serving them. And that's such a horrible thing to have infect into the church because what it does is it just, it just turns everybody against everybody else. What they were doing is they were turning Jesus just into another good teacher. And Jesus has no interest of just being another good teacher. His interest is being the Savior. Now, I want you to know something. It's appropriate to be grateful for those who are faithfully ministering God's word. And I'm not just talking about myself. I mean, there are people all over the world. It's even appropriate to look to them for personal examples and spiritual role models. I have done that. Pastors that I know that I thought, man, these guys know some stuff and they've done some stuff and I can learn something from them. And so I would put myself on purpose underneath them to learn from them. But but we don't need to place them in a in a celebrity type of an atmosphere because that becomes celebrity worship. When anyone is enamored with the preaching or the personality of a church leader or pastor, I can almost assure you that it was not going to end well. People must not put any person, especially a pastor or a preacher, on a pedestal because they will only have their hopes and expectations dashed. If you expect me to be something other than who I am, and by the way, if you don't know who I am, I'm a mess. So you shouldn't come and say to me, you look like you got your poop in a group, Pastor Ken. How do you do that? Well, guess what? I'm a mess. If you don't believe me, ask my wife. I mean, there are days somebody just needs to take me up in the woods and drop me off and make me walk home for eight hours because I'm no good to anybody. And, and yet what happens is because... Because I stand up here and I've done study and I've looked this over and I've put this thing together and I've stolen a bunch of words from other people that I'm not going to identify. (laughs) You think I'm really smart and I've really got my stuff together. But the reality is I'm a mess. You don't follow me. You follow Jesus. Because Jesus is the only person who's never going to disappoint you. I will disappoint you. I will let you down. I cannot be all things to all people. I can barely be one thing to one person. So, let's move on. Verses 13 through 15 reveals the side of Paul normally hidden from our view. You can just imagine. By the way, do you know what Paul looked like? He's probably about five foot four. Had really... Beautiful hair. He's bald. He was a scrawny little guy. He wasn't very big. And so when you hear these words that he's going to be doing, you just imagine that this little firecracker of a man, his eyes are flashing. 
His voice is cracking because he's a deeply appalled. It's what's going on. And he unleashes three rhetorical loaded questions. And here's what they are. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I mean, here's the first clues of what's wrong with this kind of clickishness in the church. The first thing that Paul says is that it, it tends to ta- chop up Christ and parcel him out as though his person and his work came in various packages. It, it, it's ridiculous. You lose perspective of the wholeness and the whole understanding of Christian theology when you start to part and parcel over and around different leaders. When you follow one man, you're getting a view of Christ just from one man. And there's no teacher in the church who has ever come along, including Apostle Paul himself, who has ever had a total, complete view of Christ. That's why we have four Gospels, because it took four of these guys to document and give us a clear understanding of who Jesus is out of their viewpoints. One guy couldn't handle it all. His viewpoint was clouded by his personality and who he was. And so God in his wisdom says, I'm going to have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all write about Jesus. And when those four guys get it together, you're going to get a pretty complete picture. Not 100%, probably like 85. And so... When you think about it, you come to these, these, these four guys that they're talking about and you limit yourself to one speaker, one teacher, you're only being fed by one person. You're not getting a clear view. You're getting a distorted view of Jesus. You're chopping Christ up and dividing him and taking one little portion of one man's report and ignoring the rest. Your view of Christ is deficient and unable to satisfy you as it was intended to do. That's why we have a preaching team in this church. Because John has a different view on life than what I do. And Sean has one completely different than I, John and I do because he's from a different generation. He understands things differently. He has a different mind. And so when you hear from one of these guys, don't you dare say, oh, Pastor Ken's not going to be here next week, so I think I'll skip church. Because Jesus is going to spank your fanny if you do that. These guys have important things to say. They're not reading from a different book, studying from a different Bible. They're not bringing a different message. They're bringing the message of Christ, and it's important to hear what they have to say. I am not the voice of reason. I am not the voice of truth. I am one voice among many. Now, the second thing that Paul says is, was Paul crucified for you? At this point, he indicates that the problem with these cliques is that it tends to overemphasize the significance of a human leader. It builds him up too much. It makes him a rival to some degree of Jesus himself. People begin to think things about him that are not true and expect things from him that he's unable to deliver. And you only have to listen around today and you will find outstanding leaders being held up by their congregations almost to the equal of Jesus himself. And it's of no value to the church when they do it. All right, so where am I? Lots of time. By the way, I was really short last week. 
for those of you that weren't here. So we don't forget last week. We just, it's kind of like you add it on to the next week. So I was 20 minutes shorter. So I'm, I get an extra 20 this week. All right, let's go to 1 Corinthians 1.17 because here's where Paul kind of starts to wrap this whole thing up. It gives us a clue. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That's a big one right there. You have a pen or a pencil or something, you need to put a star behind it, you need to underline it, you need to write it somewhere, you need to do something with this verse because this is huge because now in one verse he introduces to us the cure for divisions. And the cure is this, major on the right passion and the right person. That's what it is. And this was the only way Paul ever kept Christ central to his ministry. He believed baptism was important and obviously baptism is very prominent in this theme and in these verses because it's mentioned six times. And I take it that some at least took pride in the person who had baptized them. Some people appeared to have been proud and looked down on the others who were not baptized by a a greatest celebrity as their baptizer. And Paul lets the air out of the tires of those proud name droppers by telling them that baptism is not a celebrity affair. And compared to the preaching of the gospel, baptism is a lower priority to him. Anybody here ever hear of a guy by the name of A.W. Tozer? Put your hand up. All right. So here's the, here's the, the name dropping I do. As a baby... When I was like about two months old, A.W. Tozer dedicated me to the Lord. I can show you exactly where he laid his hand on my head. (laughs) Burned the hair right off me. You know, I mean, if that was the name dropping, I mean, I, I may have thrown up on him. I don't know. But the deal is, is that whoop de doo it's not, a, it's not something that I, it's not on my resume. It's not going to be in my epitaph. It's not going to be on my tombstone at, at the graveyard. Here lies Ken, dedicated as a baby by A.W. Tozer. Now, if you ever go, you want, you want to know something? There's a couple of reasons why I don't. If you read about his life with his family, it's horrible. He was a great mind and a great thinker and a great preacher, but he was a horrible husband and a horrible dad. Horrible. So, but what what Paul's Paul's mission was not dunking converts. It was preaching the gospel. And it's evidence that Paul viewed his preaching of the gospel as having a much higher priority than baptizing new, new converts. It can hardly be overlooked that Paul saw salvation as something which occurs independent of baptism. Baptism is important. It's the believer's public identification with Christ. But baptism is, not, baptism is not viewed as the means of one's salvation. Rather, it is an outward manifestation of salvation. Paul rejects the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. Otherwise, if he thought baptism was the means of salvation, he would have made it a much higher priority than he did. It's not. It's a big deal. 
But it's not that big of a deal to override what you're called to do, and that's to preach the gospel of Jesus because Jesus saves and baptism does not. So as we keep moving on, it's the cross of Christ is what is going to heal fragmented followers of Christ right where they're at. When you call them back to an understanding of the meaning of the cross, you will find the divisions disappearing. They will fade away like the morning mist. When you get men's eyes off the status symbols and call them back away from following men to the person of Christ and his cross, all the divisions will disappear. And there's been no other cure that I have ever seen through my years on this planet. It's the cross of Christ that cuts across all human value system. It wipes out the petty distinctions that men like to make uh, among themselves. The cross strips away our illusions and brings the pride of men tumbling down from the high place where it exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Paul's going on to describe this radical force that is so different than anything else that there is nothing like it in the entire world. No man would have ever planned the cross in God's great plan of changing the world. If God would have left it up to us, we would not have brought the cross into play. It wouldn't even have have come into our minds that this was going to be the tool by which God would use to redeem men and transform lives. Because we don't think that way, but God had a, a better understanding of why it was so important. And that's what Paul calls us back to. What we need to remember is that we will have unity, we will have harmony, we will have peace in the ecclesia, the church, the body, the family of God when we major on the majors and the right person and on the right mission. That's what it's called to. So here it is. There's not a single teacher who ever lived who can heal a hurt of a broken heart or supply energy and adequacy to someone who feels worthless and unable to function in society. Not one. There is not a teacher among us today or at any other time who is able to open the mind and the eyes of the heart and reveal to us the glory and the majesty of God. Not one. That is not the work of men. That is the work of God himself. He chooses various channels through which to work. We must allow him the privilege of doing that. They will not all be the same flavor. They are not all going to have the same characteristics. We reveal our immaturity when we insist that only those with a certain characteristic or credentials are the ones that we'll listen to or we feel can bless or strengthen our lives. No man is the Savior. No man can deliver us except for Jesus. Amen? All right. Here's what I want you to do. I've got some questions I want you to consider this morning in regards to unity, in in regards to the body of Christ. What proactive actions have you taken to maintain the unity of the church? What is more important, your personal preference or the overall health of the church? 
What's the difference between a contentious clique and a group of people in the same stage of life who share common interests? And lastly, what can I do to maintain the unity of this church? Those are things we need to think about. Those are things that God's calling us as, as part of his family, as part of the community of faith here that we need to have at the foreground of our minds at all times in order for his great name to go out and to make an impact on those who don't quite know him yet. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time that we've been able to come and contemplate the reality of the cross and the work of Christ in our lives and that, that there should be no division between us as Christ followers because he's the central focus of our lives. There should be no thought of somebody else being greater of importance than anybody else because Jesus is of the greatest importance. And help us to to just live out our lives as though Jesus, Jesus makes the biggest difference in our lives and take our pride which separates us from others and take the distinctions and the dislikes that we have against brothers and sisters and help us to see your uniqueness in them, that we would love them as you love them. Help us to live these things out as we walk our life before you every day. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen.